From the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. In 1996, an Angmo arrived in Topayo to start a new life. He loved Singapore's idiosyncrasies so much that he decided to turn his humorous observations of everyday life here into a series of books. Today, we speak to Neil Humphreys, author of Notes from an Even Smaller Island in 2001 and numerous other titles about his take on 1990s Singapore, Kiasu behavior, colonial history, and what he considers most unique about this little island. Thanks very much, Neil, for joining me today. To start off, how did you end up moving to Singapore in the mid-1990s? Pure luck, my friend. Pure luck. It could have been anywhere. I was studying at the University of Manchester, which I now realize is very popular with Asian students and Singaporeans particularly as a very vibrant alumni association in Singapore, which I'm involved with now. But I had no idea of this at the time. So I just happened to be at Manchester University and on my hall of residence, my corridor where I was staying, Chinese Singaporean guy called David. And we became good friends. And he invited me to Singapore, me and another friend, actually the famous Scott in my first book. And he invited us both to just come and see him in Singapore. And we were 21 years old, had no idea about anything. I've said many times, it is true. I had no idea where Singapore was, none. I, like many others, really did think it was somehow either next to or part of China. And I have a first-class history degree, and I still thought that. I only had two, barely two, sort of cultural touchstones points about Singapore. One was the cocktail, the Singapore sling. And that tells you everything you need to know about my working class background. And I'd heard the word raffles, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I actually thought it was a dog because I think I'm sure there was a cartoon dog called raffles. I could be wrong, but that's what it was. So yeah, obviously before that I did some research, but pure luck. He could have been from anywhere. On my corridor in Manchester, there was a guy from Hong Kong. There was a guy from Brunei. There was a guy from Kuwait. And there was some really foreign guys from up north of England. And so it could have been anywhere, but I just happened to connect with this guy and he invited me to Singapore. So I turned up November the 20th, 1996, with 2,000 pounds in my pocket that I'd saved myself doing temp jobs after I graduated. £2,000, a suitcase. I didn't know anybody in Singapore apart from David. I didn't even know his family yet. I hadn't met them. Didn't have a job. I had 30 days visa. Within a week, I found a job as a speech and drama teacher, which is about as cliched as a young expat can get in terms of a first job in an Asian country. And then five years later, I published my first bestseller. And when I look back at this now, I, I just think, geez, five years is like you barely get time to blow your nose when you're my age. But yeah, somehow, yeah, I turned up with 2,000 pounds, a suitcase, knew nothing about the place, didn't even know where it was. And five years later, I'm writing a book proclaiming what an expert I am about the country, which of course I wasn't. <laughs> what were your initial impressions as a resident of Singapore back then? Exotic. Exotic. I thought it was the most exotic place I'd ever seen, mostly because I hadn't seen many places at that point. I look back now and I, I envy, I genuinely envy 
my innocence and my wild, wide-eyed sense of curiosity, which I still have, but obviously I don't have the innocence anymore because I've been here for so long. And my Singapore in 1996 was so special, I realise now with hindsight, because it wasn't really like any other person's Singapore. It wasn't a Singaporean Singapore, for obvious reasons. I wasn't born here. But it wasn't an expat Singapore either. And it's only with the benefit of hindsight that you realise what a, why my first book had such a profound, seems pretentious, but certainly such a long-reaching impact, if you like. And it was because it really was unique. I came here when I was 21. I didn't come here with any expat package. I wasn't middle class. To be very frank, most expats in Singapore, if they're Western expats, tend to be middle class, at least. I came from a very poor working class background, single parent family, housing estate, a council housing estate in East London called Dagenham. You just didn't get people like that in Singapore. You don't really now, let alone then. And I lived in Topayu because that's where my friend David lived. So I might as well have been one of the guardians of the galaxy. I might as well have fallen out of the sky to see a six foot four, 21 year old white man in an HDB lift in November 1996 in a three room flat in Topayu was unheard of. I mean, I got the full gamut of emotions. I would get kids who would just stare at me, just stare at me, open mouth, looking up at me like I was a giant. There was a Chinese auntie who got into the lift with me one time, screamed and got out again. Right? And then there's the others who would just interrogate me every single time. Where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? So it was extraordinary. I was like this museum exhibit. So it was exotic. Everything was exotic. Coffee shops were exotic. HDB flats were exotic. Topo was exotic. Topo Town Garden Park was exotic. That stupid green viewing tower at Topo Park that looks like a giant green penis. That was exotic. Everything was exotic to me because I came from a very monotonous red brick housing estate in East London where every house looked the same and every street looked the same. So to come to a country that, you know, with a different climate and a different environment and different flora and fauna and to see monkeys at Bukit Timur and to see monitor lizards in reservoirs and to eat in a hawker centre at 2am, I'd never known anything as sexy as that in all my life. So I came at it from a completely different perspective of, say, and I'm stereotyping now, but as say someone in their 30s on an expat package with a wife and kids who's used to American suburbia or Australian suburbia or European suburbia, and then suddenly they're coming to Singapore and they're expected to live in apartments and they, then they don't have gardens and they don't like hawker centers very much and all that cliche crap. I didn't have any of that. I just thought every single aspect of Singapore, from the loud aunties on the buses to the crazy guy with the chopper at the chicken rice stall, to feeding turtles, ikan bilis in Topo Town Park. Everything about it was exotic, unique, original. And for someone like me, otherworldly, it was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And, I think, and just to add, last point, just to add, I think because of my background, because I won't say an older 
established career expat. I had no demands on Singapore. Does that make sense? When an expat comes, I want this, I want that, I want a house, I want a maid, I want a car, I want education for my kids. I didn't have any expectations or any demands. I just wanted something different. And it couldn't have been more different. And therefore, I couldn't have been more grateful. I loved every second of it. It was every day was a new adventure. I loved it. So from all these initial impressions, I mean, what finally prompted you to write notes from an even smaller island? Well, it's very funny you ask that because funny things kept happening to me. And you think, I, ca I can't be that. And it, it took me 20 years of wisdom and hindsight and whatever else to kind of get a handle on this. But funny things kept happening to me. Be it famously from the first night that people still talk about 20 plus years later that I walked into a void deck funeral thinking it was a coffee shop to living with a frankly demented Indian landlady who would flash me her breasts once in a while when she was washing her clothes in the kitchen sink to terrifying the neighbors. There was always things happening to me or happening around me. And it's a combination of factors. One, it's that writer's eye, right? You either have it or you don't. Some people don't. I've had it since I was a small boy. I am drawn to the observational. I'm drawn to the things I see around me. Even as a teenager, if I saw something unusual, I would write it down. I, and I did it when I first came to Singapore. So I would jot down notes and shove them in a drawer. And I always wanted to be a writer. Let's not kid ourselves. I'd known since I was a teenager that I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what of, but I just knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I would slowly start to compile these fish out of water stories, if you like. But this is the interesting part. What I come back to what I said just now. It is a fish out of water story, but with the benefit of hindsight, it kind of isn't because everyone talks about culture clash, culture clash. I didn't have one. I didn't have one. I left a multiracial, multicultural East London, predominantly working class, and came to a multiracial, multicultural working class Topayu. The only really things that were different were the food was better and cheaper. And everyone thought I was an Angmore novelty. But that was it, really. So it wasn't a big cultural clash. I felt at home here. But of course, there were things that were different. So what I started to do was I started to turn it around because I would read books because like a very good new resident, right, or tourist, I would read every Singaporean book I could find. And you would know this yourself, back then especially, it was a very limited range of books. On the one hand, you had these academic weighty tomes, Lee Kuan Yew from third world to first world and men in white and the fall of Singapore and that kind of thing, which is fine. Every, every bookshelf in the world has that. And then on the other extreme, you'd have very throwaway, fluffy stuff like no money, no honey, that kind of thing. Again, they also have their part, but there was this big gap in the middle that in other countries would be filled by people like Bill Bryson or Pico Iyer, writers, travel writers, or Paul Thoreau, travel writers that I really admire. Or then you'd get those really cheesy, patronizing expat books, those lonely guide, rough planet, whatever they're called, books that were written by guys who'd been here for about 
a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And they, they, they were very superficial. And that's a long-winded way of saying, why couldn't I find anything on the shelf that came anywhere close to replicating the experiences that I, were ha- that I was having in Topayo? So I thought, screw it. I'll just write it myself. I'll just write it myself. Because there hadn't been a book like mine before. And that was the interesting thing. You're like this. I was by this time, I wasn't a teacher. I was now a journalist at the Straits Times. And I was asked, and I asked some, I won't name them, but they're quite well known journalists, Singaporean journalists, for some advice. And nearly all of them said, don't do it. Don't do it. And I kind of get where they're coming from with hindsight. Because the last thing Singaporeans need is another Angmore telling them what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, what's good, what's bad. That's really what every Singaporean needs, right? They need an Angmore, a smart-ass Angmore, telling them, oh, this you do well, this you do bad. But as I explained to them, that wasn't my intention. I don't write like an expat. I don't even know what that is. I still don't. And this upsets expats when I say this. But if you want to offend me to this day, call me an expat. You can call me a shit writer. I'll accept it. If you call me an expat, I'll be insulted. (laughs) I just don't like being called an expat. I've never been one. I don't associate with the connotations of what that means. So it was just a guy, a working class guy from London, writing about his working class heartland experiences in Topayu and how they were similar and how they were dissimilar. And my sort of wry, pithy, self-deprecating observations thrown in. And that's all it was. I'd never seen, a, I'd seen lots of books like that in England, but I'd never seen a book like that in Singapore before. And so, yeah, that was the inspiration to write it. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, in chapter six of Notes from an Even Smaller Island, you discuss your impression of Kiasu behavior in Singapore. Could you explain what struck you most about this phenomenon? Oh, so many examples. But as I said, first I became a speech and drama teacher. And in some way, it, it was the best job. I, I say this to young students today. If you're going to a new country, if you have the opportunity to do teaching, it can be the best job because you get an almost a shortcut into a culture. So I was teaching every age from three years old nursery to like sec four secondary every day at every different school in the country. You name it. It's like neighborhood schools, ATA schools, independent schools, international schools, local schools, kampong schools, kindergartens, everything. It was the best experience. But I noticed this weird thing about the children. They were relatively easy to teach. (laughs) And it was extraordinary to me because I went to a really rough, comprehensive school in the UK where it was a bit of a nightmare for the teachers. But I would tell three-year-old children, three-year-old children, nursery, to go away and learn a poem. And they would come back the following Saturday and had learned the poem. It was extraordinary. And the only way that could have been done is if their parents (laughs) were drilling them day after day. It's the only way they could have done it. But three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids, I'd give them a different English poem every week age appropriate, they would go away, come back the following Saturday, memorized perfectly, flawlessly. So this is extraordinary. And that was my sort of early inkling or insight into this Kiasu cannot fail, must succeed, must work, blah, 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 at all costs. 
and I would see it more and more. So I went, and I would start talking to parents and then I'd get parents come up to me and say, can you set them harder homework? So what? When I was a kid their age, I didn't even have homework. I didn't even get homework till I went to secondary school in the UK. It didn't even exist in my primary school. And you're asking me to give more homework to five-year-olds. So that's the first aspect of chiasuism. But it also has a very positive way. I think, I think sometimes, I've said this before, but I think sometimes chiasuism gets an unfair, unfairly bad press. Because when I was growing up in England, I would have given anything for a little bit of that Singapore chiasuism. And let me explain why, if, if you give me a second. Because if I, when I meet, a good analogy is when I meet a taxi driver here, he will proudly tell me that he's got one daughter in university and another son who's just become a teacher and whatever, or becoming a lawyer, or whatever. In Singapore, by and large, you will often come across taxi drivers who will work 12, 14 hours a day so their kids do not become taxi drivers. It's fascinating. In England, that's, that, that's the Asian working class pride. I work hard as a taxi driver so my kids don't become taxi drivers. In England, it's kind of the complete opposite with the working classes. The mindset is different. Angmors tend to get very defensive. There's nothing wrong with being a there's nothing wrong with being a taxi driver. I'm a taxi driver. If my son was a taxi driver, I'd be proud of him. For example, my dad is a plumber. He's a retired plumber. And there is nothing wrong with being a plumber. It gave him a very good life. But he'd be very if I was to ask him, he'd be very defensive about it. He'd say, There's nothing wrong with being a plumber. And they get very defensive of their working class origins and very protective. And sometimes that leads, that constrain or lead into a strain of anti-intellectualism, which means I, I've, you'll often hear Angmors, or you'll occasionally hear Angmors say things like, I've never read a book in my life, and look what I've become. It's quite a common Angmor thing to say. That would be a source of shame in Singapore. In England, that would be a source of pride among some working classes. I never read a book in my life, and look at me, didn't I do well? And where does that anti-intellectualism lead? Well, it leads to Brexit and Trump and populism, so on. So I admire, I truly admire that aspect of curiosism, which that aspiration. I work hard as a taxi driver so my children don't have to be a taxi driver. So I can pay for them to have the best education so that they can become lawyers, doctors, engineers, or whatever they want. No, there isn't anything wrong with being a taxi driver. Nothing at all. I'm proudly working class myself. But Asian parents generally want their kids to go a step further, a step higher than they did. And I think that's great. I personally think that's fantastic. I don't see what's so negative about that. I could have used a bit more of that <laughs> growing up in England. So yeah, yeah. Kiosuism, yeah, it can be taken to extremes and it is often taken to extremes, but it comes generally from a good place, I think anyway. Now in 2012, you published Return to a Sexy Island. This was after spending five years in Australia. It is now 11 years after that book came out. What has changed and what has stayed the same in Singapore from your point of view? Yeah, it's a good question, that one. Yeah, I was away for five years in Australia. And maybe it's because the grass is always greener. 
But I happen to believe, like I still do, that those five years I was away from 2006 to 2011 was probably some of the most dramatic changes in Singapore in the last sort of 30, 40, 50 years. And and that, that sounds like I'm being very diva-ish. I'm making it all about me. Oh, as soon as I leave, this happens and that happens. But when you think what happened in that period, MBS was built, Marina Bay was rebuilt, Park Sentosa was rebuilt, Park Connectors shot up everywhere, the opposition started to win, GRCs, just lots of things seemed to happen in a very, oh, and of course the main thing, massive surge in population. I think it like jumped a million or plus. So I arrived back into 2011, late 2011, to an MBS that didn't exist before, RWS that didn't exist before, Park Connectors and Henderson Waves and Workers' Party running GRCs. And it was just a different place in so many ways. And suddenly, and a massive population jump. I think it was three and a half million when I arrived in Singapore and then something like that. And then when I, le- when I came back to Singapore, it was over five. So what had happened or what I felt happened was, and I said this a lot in my book, and I still think it's more relevant today than it was then. I kept coming back to this fundamental question, almost an existential question, which is, who is this Singapore for? And I find myself saying it more now. Yes, we're a globalized city. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, we've got this patchwork quilt of colors and cultures and races from all kinds from the four corners of the earth. And it's great. We're open our doors to anybody, tech, investment, entrepreneurs, startups. Great. Brilliant. Yes. Bring the money, bring the money, bring the money. But who is it for? I don't want Singapore to be like Dubai. I want Singapore to retain an essence of Singapore. It's what keeps me here. It's why I love the country so much. You know what I mean? I don't want it just to be metropolis. I don't want it just to be New York or Sydney or Paris or London. You And then you... When you go to Marina Bay now, if you go to the financial center areas, which I rarely do, but if, if I do, I call that class of people, what do I call them? The hotel lobby class. Those are the people that no matter where you go in the world, they all sound the same. If you go to a five-star hotel in New York, Paris, Sydney, Melbourne, they'll all speak a certain kind of English. doesn't matter if their first language isn't even English but they'll all speak a certain kind of English that makes them almost borderless, accentless, the kind of people you're getting crazy rich Asians. I don't want Singapore to become that. I really don't. Now, in your book, Saving a Sexier Island from 2015, you write about visiting 50 of Singapore's historical sites, from the Dragon Playground in Topayo to the Old Changi Hospital. What made you seek these sites out? And why do you think Singapore's history is sexy? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Because it was my little bit of token rebelliousness, if I'm being honest, because SG50 was the thing at the time. And again, SG50 had very good intentions, but I wasn't the first person. Other satirists in Singapore and, and prominent writers were beginning to point out online that we were starting to be, fall under the impression that Singapore didn't begin until 1965. And I was a bit uncomfortable with that. Singaporeans 
were around a lot longer than 1965. Singaporean sweat and toil and blood, sweat and tears and everything else helped to make Singapore the thriving entrepot it was long before 1965. Yes, things accelerated after 1965. We know that. But I, it was my sort of tribute to say to the people and places that predated 1965. Yes, what we have done since 1965 is miraculous. It hasn't been done anywhere else in the world. We know that. Third world to first world in a generation or two. It's never been done before. I don't think it'll ever be done again. But Singapore didn't begin in 1965. And me picking out, not all 50 places, but many of the 50 places that predate 1965 was just my unsubtle reminder <laughs> that Singapore's got a long and vibrant and eclectic and diverse history. And I'm not even talking about Angmors. I'm talking about Chinese, Indians, Malays, the Eurasians, the Peranakans. I mean, it just goes back decades, if not hundreds of years, obviously. And that was what the book was about. As a British person yourself, what were your observations about how Singapore treated its colonial history back then? Well, if you've read my first book, which I wrote when I was very young, so it, it was quite raw, it was quite raw and shouty in places. But I still share a lot of the, my younger version sentiment, which is I thought it was far too reverential, far too reverential. And I said in my first book, which I'm kind of proud of because it's kind of come full circle now, but I said in my first book that I couldn't understand why so many buildings and streets and roads were named after white men. I, I just couldn't, because it, I, I had my first class degree in history. I, I was not a stranger to the East India Company and the excesses of the British Empire and so on. And I found it quite, I, I found it surprising that Singapore, an Asian city, was still being so reverential to these figures. When I'd gone through a kind of revisionist history training, where that outdated jingoistic interpretation of the British Empire and its legacy was being challenged, and rightly so. And yet it wasn't, not when I first arrived. I mean, when you read the, the old history books of Singapore, the sort of primary school texts, they were simplistic to the point of being wrong. <laughs> they always say, if you simplify history too much, it ends up being factually incorrect. But if, my earliest interpretations of sort of primary school history in Singapore were, it was invented by two men, Stanford Raffles and Lee Kuan Yew. It, it, that was it. It was this great leader, this single great leader narrative two strands of it that were being played out, one in the 19th century and one in the 20th. And apart from being far too simplistic, again, it was far too respectful of the former white colonial masters. But I, I, I never got it because as a working class, you see, again, I'm not from that expat world, so I'm a working class council estate kid. I didn't grow up revering titles and sirs and dukes and lords and the royal family and all that crap. I didn't then and I don't now. The royal family itself to me is an utter absurdity. It's an anachronistic absurdity. Now, at the end of saving a six-year island, 
you encourage readers to make their own lists about what they consider part of Singapore's history and identity. If you had to pick three things that you consider most uniquely Singaporean, what would they be and why? Okay, well, so many. Okay, the clue there is uniquely Singaporean. So I'll pick three physical things, if you'll allow me, and then I'll pick three cultural things, if sure. that's okay. Okay, the three actual tactile physical things, the hawker center, any hawker center, just a, but a nice big heartland hawker center, like the one at Topolo Long 8 or like the one at Senkung MRT, a big hawker center. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in Malaysia. There's nothing like it. In, they have mamak stalls in Malaysia, yes. And Hong Kong has outside coffee shops and so on. I've also been to Taiwan. There is nothing like the Singapore Hawker Centre anywhere in the world. And it is absolutely spectacular. I've just come back from New York and, and I had a good time in the US. I was there for two weeks. But by the second week, I was pining for hawker food. I was desperate for hawker food. I, I was just fed up with eating fried brown stuff as much as I like pizza and everything else. So the, the physical hawker center is, is number one. Number two, Singapore, this sounds a bit wishy-washy, but I do believe it. Singapore's city greenery, or you can call it city in nature, city in garden, whatever we're calling it this week. It is so special. It is so unique. There are other green cities in the world, yes. There are other big parks in the world. I've just come back from Central Park in New York. There are big parks in London. But there is nothing quite like Singapore. I cross my road in Senkang. I am by Sungai Serangoon. I am by the river. It is 50 meters from my front door. I get on my bicycle and I can follow the river and or the sea for the next 20, 30 kilometers. I can't think of many cities in the world where you can do that. I, I really can't. Sydney's got great parks. New York's got great parks. So does London. But th the way it's interconnected, the way that you are cycling alongside housing estates and expressways, but without really seeing them, if that makes sense. Well, you know what our park connectors are like. I think they're really special. And it's no coincidence that David Attenborough himself has said that if we're going to have a template for the 21st century city, it's Singapore. I mean, David Attenborough has said it himself, so who am I to argue? So Singapore city greenery, number two. Number three, just a fun one. Hawpaw Villa. Hawpaw Villa. Simply because it is so batshit crazy, right? It is a brilliant, eccentric display of wealth and superstition. It is a, it is, I'm being pretentious now, but it is almost Singapore in microcosm because it's mad. It shouldn't have survived this long. It arguably shouldn't have existed in the first place, but it's still here. It's still involving. It's still enduring generation after generation, just like Singapore. And if you think about Hawpaw Villa and its displays and tableaus, what are they obsessed with? Utterly obsessed with. Wealth and prosperity, filial piety, and law and order. If that's not Singapore in a nutshell, I don't know what is. And it's nuts, and it shouldn't have survived this long, just like Singapore. So those are my three physical ones. 
And then quickly the cultural ones, because these are important. Three cultural things that I think are unique to, unique to Singapore. One is an overlap. Number one is the Hawker Centre culture. Hawker Centre is nothing without the people. There's just something special about the Hawker Centre culture. You could be sitting next to a cleaner or literally a billionaire, and you can all be eating your $4 fishball noodles. I don't know anywhere in the world else in the world where that happens. So the Hawker Centre culture, number one. Number two, the Kampong spirit. Now, straight away, I know people are going to say, what? The Kampong spirit died with the Kampongs. At the risk of getting my head bitten off, I think that's a bit unfair because I still think it's there. And by all means, disagree. I just think it's evolved. It's changed. Because when I was in New York, the lack of tolerance was exhausting. Everyone is shouting at each other. Everyone has attitude. Everyone is screaming abuse at each other. Nobody stops the traffic lights. Everybody cuts corners. I know they say we do that here as well, but there's a, there's a, there's a certain accepted level of aggression in New York and London, where I used to live, and often many other major cities that you kind of almost accept because you've got millions of people living on top of each other. But I would say in Singapore, where I'm sitting right now is a tiny space. I'm looking out of my window. It's a tiny space shared with 500 other families. For us to not kill each other on a daily basis requires an act of will and self-restraint like nowhere else I've ever seen. It's an absolute testament to our remarkable high levels of tolerance for each other that we take for granted. And we do take it for granted. We are living cheek by jowl. If my neighbors fart upstairs, I can hear it. If they pull the curtains, I can hear it. That weird HDB marble thing that nobody's ever worked out. We can all hear it. Morning, noon, and night. Every morning, my lovely Indian neighbor, he's up at 7 a.m. chopping vegetables every morning. It's my alarm call. I've got another neighbor, a floor above me. Every morning, clears his throat. Every morning, clears his throat into the sink. It's like he's trying to raise the Titanic every morning. But we tolerate it. And I think we're too hard on ourselves sometimes. Yes, we're a bit kiasu. Yes, we're not, we're maybe not as friendly and we're not sharing bowls of sugar like the Kampong days. You know what that is? That's whim whimsical nostalgia for a past that nobody wants. The reason we don't share bowls of sugar anymore is because we can all afford sugar for the most part. But let me tell you now, if my block caught fire, I know everybody would help each other. I know it. I know it. So the Kampong spirit still exists. We all live on top of each other, tens of thousands of us, and we all get on. I think that's fantastic. I think it's absolutely fantastic and it's uniquely Singaporean. And the last one, number three, and this one I think gets overlooked. It's a cultural thing. And it was something that the aware president, I'm name dropping, the aware president, Margaret Thomas, mentioned to me. And I thought, yeah, it's so true. Number three, uniquely Singaporean cultural thing, safety for women. As a father and a happily married man, who never has to worry about where his wife and daughter are 24-7, I never take it for granted. When I was in New York, after about two or three days, it got to the point where I would get some of the food or some of the things on my own. 
because I just didn't want the hassle of them coming out with me to Times Square and running the risk of being a, because it happened a lot, being harassed, being accosted. It happened a lot while I was in New York. It's never happened in Singapore in 25 years. Safety for women is uniquely Singaporean. And we don't talk about it because we take it for granted. But I've lived in three different countries and only one of them could guarantee safety for women 24-7. And that was Singapore. And it's truly special.